This is a podcast from the Harvard John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. When we talk about climate change, we often talk about it on this grand scale, melting ice caps, expanding deserts, rising sea levels, superstorms, droughts. But at its core, Climate change is deeply tied to all of the small things we do every day. It's tied to the energy that warms our homes and cooks our food and transports our kids to school. Responding to climate change means rethinking where our energy comes from and how we use it. Yet this relationship between climate and energy is often misunderstood and even manipulated in public discourse, especially this year. So I sat down with Michael McElroy, Gilbert Butler Professor of Environmental Studies here at SEAS, to better understand the complexities of this relationship and why it's such a contentious political issue. Professor McElroy recently wrote a book about this, in which he confronts climate change skeptics and deniers, and envisions a world without fossil fuels. So as always, I'm Leah Burrows, science communicator here at SEAS, and here's my conversation with Mike McElroy. Mike, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. <laughs> so you are the author of uh, a new book called Energy and Climate Vision for the Future. Correct. So the focus of this podcast is all about translating jargon and scientific language into accessible language. And energy and, and climate are by no means jargon, but I also think that they are commonly misused and misunderstood. I think that, I think that, I think that's true. So then let's start with those two words. What's the relationship between energy and climate that you're exploring in this book? Let, let's start with the climate issue. I think that uh, the, the, the key uh, concern here is that what we are doing as a human species, and uh, been doing it since the Industrial Revolution uh, at an incredible rate, is we are changing the composition of the atmosphere globally. And we're doing that by adding, for example, carbon dioxide to the atmosphere which is like putting more insulation on the Earth. So the Earth is getting warmer, and we are responsible for it getting warmer. As far as the energy part of this is concerned, well, most of the, the, the largest single source of that carbon dioxide is the fact that we uh, rely on coal and oil and natural gas to provide energy. So the trick is, and I mean, the challenge is, can you transition away from the traditional reliance on these fossil fuels? My strong view is that we cannot afford, we have to make this transition to a zero carbon future as quickly as possible. So where are we to today in, in, in the research required to, to build the foundations of this future? There's a big difference between where we are and where we could be. So difference number one is that um, if the, the cost of uh, producing electricity from wind and from solar and from hydro is largely the capital investment in the plant. The cost of producing electricity from a natural gas fired power plant or coal is significantly the cost of the fuel. So the big difference is that if you, if you can make the investment, you have free electricity for 50 years. So one of the, the, the vision I talk about in the last chapter of this book for the United States is a transition to an energy economy which is dominated to a large extent by, not by fossil fuels, but by wind and solar, possibly hydro, and possibly geothermal and some nuclear. 
And in the transportation sector, my vision is that we make the transition to driving our cars with electricity, battery-powered electricity, with that electricity coming from these re renewable sources rather than using gasoline. So that's my vision for how we can make this transition in the United States. It's not easy, but I think it's, it's the challenge and it's feasible. Now, in the book, you make it very clear that this challenge of achieving a, a zero-carbon future uh, is not one for just one country to solve, but it's truly a, a global challenge. And in the book, you, you look specifically at China. So walk us through the, the situation there and, and the vision for, for China's energy future. China has um, a serious problem with air pollution. If China were to, uh, to rapidly transition to using electricity to drive its cars today, that would actually be a negative for climate change because most of China's electricity is coming from coal. And so effectively what you would be doing is using coal to drive your car. Now, if you're going to do something about that, in the long run, you have to change the energy source from coal to a cleaner energy source. And why not do both? Why not actually have a plan that, that also addresses the air quality problem at the same time as addressing the climate issue? So what China has done is it has a, a very ambitious plan to change its energy structure very dramatically over a significantly short period of time. I mean, the plan is to build more nuclear power plants. The plan is to introduce more wind. The plan is to have more solar. The plan is to have more hydro. And to, to try to slowly cut down on the amount of coal that's used. However, you know, if, if you look at it, uh, changing the economy of a big country like China and changing the energy system, you can't do it on a dime. You can't do it that quickly. I mean, it, it, they will make the transition if they're successful to a zero, a lower carbon future, but it will be very slow. Like turning yeah. the Titanic. Precisely, yeah. And in the United States, it seems that we have an additional challenge in that responding to climate change is a partisan issue. So how do we deal with that? That's a, that's a, that's a serious challenge. Uh, I mean, why, is it, uh, why does it have to be a left-right uh, issue, Democrat-Republican issue? It's not a left-right issue in Europe. It's not a left-right issue in other countries in the world. Why is it here? I went on a, on a, on a trip uh, this summer with a group of um, Harvard alumni where I was lecturing. And it's actually a group of Harvard alumni, uh, Stanford alumni, and Yale alumni uh, on a trip uh, around the Southern Europe. And I was talking about climate change. Before I gave my first lecture, um, one of the people from Stanford came up to me and said, Look, I'm interested in what you're going to be talking about, but I want you to understand I don't believe that climate change is a serious issue. And uh, so I, I, I did my thing, and I was incredibly pleased when in the middle of this trip, this guy came back to me and said, look, he said, I want, you to, I want you to know you have changed my view of this particular thing. I now understand how serious it is. What do you think you said that changed his mind? Well, maybe it was the way in which I was presenting it. Maybe it was the fact that I was able to get rid of some of the misperceptions that he had about the whole issue. The optimistic thing is that, you know, smart people, maybe who have not had any particular education on this issue and have gotten their opinions from Fox News or from, you know, Wall Street Journal op-ed pieces, uh, maybe with a little bit of education, we can build a better uh, community of thoughtful, 
politicians and thoughtful policy initiatives. And there's a case to be made to the public as well. Precisely, yeah. It's important for people to realize what the advantages and disadvantages would be of a transition to using electricity to drive their car. So, for example, here in Cambridge, the price of uh, the retail price of electricity is about 19 cents a kilowatt hour, last time I looked. If you were to drive your car electrically with 19 uh, cents a kilowatt hour electricity, you would be driving your car for the equivalent of about a dollar fifty a gallon of gasoline. Wow. Now, if you were driving your car in Washington State, where electricity prices are about nine cents a kilowatt hour, you'd be driving your car for the equivalent of about sixty cents a gallon of gasoline. So, there would be an economic advantage in making that transition. And then, of course, in addition to that, you would have the situation where um, Air quality would be better. You wouldn't have to breathe the fumes of, uh, that come from the exhausts of cars and trucks and so on. So there are advantages in being able to do that. I, I strongly believe that building the infrastructure, this new infrastructure, which has more electricity, that has a more efficient way of distributing electricity across the country, is going to be a boom for the economy. Because it's going to, you, you have to have, People who are trained to, to build the, you know, the electrical connections uh, that are required to, to do this. You have to have people who are going to be able to build those new, uh, new generation of, uh, of electrically powered cars. You have people who are going to have to uh, train to produce more and more efficiently with batteries. So my sort of vision here is that if we're worried at the moment, as we should be, about the increasing disparity between the rich and the poor and the collapsing middle class, Okay, part of the reason that's going on here is that um, we need to provide more opportunities for that middle class. And I think that changing this infrastructure and investing in it is that opportunity. And it, 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 it isn't easy. But I do believe that uh, with, with, with smart political leadership, you can couple dealing with this issue to the larger challenge of the economy and jobs. If you can make the connection to jobs and the economy, then I think we're up and running. Hey, everyone. So this conversation you've just listened to with Professor McElroy took place a couple of weeks before the U.S. presidential election. Obviously, the outcome of that election has impacted the future of energy and climate in this country and around the world. I wanted to better understand those impacts. So I gave Professor McElroy a call and asked him, what does a Trump presidency mean for the future of energy and climate? Here's what he had to say. So my feeling is that, first of all, I don't think uh, that he is going to be able to pull out of the Paris Agreement in the in the very immediate uh, uh, near term. It's uh, about a four-year window before something can be done with that. Secondly, uh, my hope is that he will begin to have uh, second thoughts about how important the climate issue is. Uh, in particular, I would hope that he will be persuaded from his... Uh, national security advisors that there is a national security interest in uh, in future climate change. Uh, so my hope is that that will moderate his uh, strong views. Finally, I think it's important to recognize that um, there is very strong support for the need to do something about climate change that is broadly distributed across the country, particularly on the west coast and the east coast, the northeastern part of the country. 
Uh, and, uh, and, you know, states are taking uh, steps, initiatives to try to encourage renewable energy. You know, we did a study recently to see just how extensive those commitments are. It turns out that there are only three states in the country that do not have specific renewable energy um, uh, incentives, only three. So I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, desperately pessimistic about the prospects. Uh, certainly uh, it was a surprise, but um, we'll have to wait and see. And, and what about the international ramifications of this? Well, the international ramifications, if, if he were to uh, pull out of, uh, out of Paris or to basically um, subvert the, the commitment that was made in terms of future reductions in emissions for the United States, I think that it would have a serious impact on the perception of U.S. leadership and the perception of uh, the U.S. as a reliable uh, international partner. I do not think that uh, that uh, China would uh, reverse course, and so the net effect would be to essentially turn leadership on a very important global issue over to China. I think that would be a mistake for for our country. So there you have it. If you want to know more about Professor McElroy's research or any of the research done here at SEAS, visit our website, seas.harvard.edu. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Snapchat. This has been a podcast from the Harvard John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences.